Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Last week we were in John, the end of John chapter 3. We saw John the Baptist and his role, and Jesus uh, kind of... Uh, Shifting that role or taking over that role in some in some ways, not really taking over the role, but shifting the spotlight to Jesus. And this week we see another meeting. Okay, we saw the meeting of Nicodemus, the man, uh, and he was a Jewish man and a religious man and a Pharisee. Okay, so he was very um, religious, if you will. And we saw Jesus meeting with him, and then we see today Jesus meets a woman. Okay, and the woman is not religious in any way; she's not a Jew. And uh, she's, in fact, kind of an outcast, and we'll look at that. But it's a very different person. We're going to see how Jesus responds to different people in different ways. Just like I said uh, several weeks ago when we were talking about Nicodemus, when you're going through the book of John and we're going through it just and you're reading it or whatever, just look at the way that pe- or Jesus responds or interacts with different people in different ways. Because he doesn't interact with the woman at the well the same way as he does Nicodemus or these other people. And he does it on purpose. Um, he desires that everyone would be saved, and so he he interacts with people in a way that he knows is the is the way that they will understand the gospel and understand uh, the message. Okay, and so that's really cool. All right, so let's read it, um, and then we'll we'll kind of jump into it. I'm gonna read uh, chapter four, verses one. We'll just go all the way to 26. And then we're going to have to, it's a two-parter this week. We'll have to split off at 26, and we'll pick back up uh, next week at that verse. So, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel ground that Jacob was given uh, to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. And she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You are not greater than our our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst but... The water that I give to him will become in him a well of water, springing up into eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give, us, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw again. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, uh, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You, current, or, sorry, you have correctly said 
I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your husband. This you have truly said. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers also worshipped on this mountain, and you people, or the Jews, you, you say that in Jerusalem is a place that the men ought to worship. So Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor Jerusalem is uh, will you worship, but you will worship you worship what you do not know, mean the Samaritans, uh, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and it is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called to Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we just come before you and just uh, pray that uh, through this, through looking at this, we'd understand um, what you have for us. God, and your spirit would teach us and that we would um, be encouraged or convicted as needed, God. Um, we love you and we pray all this through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, whoa. Got a new clicker. And obviously, it's not working very good. Let's see if we can get this to go. There we go. All right, so you guys know uh, I did lifeguard training. I was, I've done it a lot, okay? Uh, I love lifeguarding. I love um, taking the training even, okay? A lot of times I don't, you know, you don't like training and stuff, but I even like taking the training of lifeguard. And uh, the, de the design and the whole goal and purpose of this Red Cross training is that we'd be able to save everyone in the pool who's drowning. We, there's no one that we don't want to save, right? Every single person that... Uh, gets into a situation where they're drowning, we want to save them, and it, there's even things that they train us on, even if they're not in the pool, uh, even if they're in, they have other situations that are going on, like a cardiac arrest, um, you know, not in the pool or on the side of the pool or whatever, we're trained to be able to save those people's lives, and uh, the desire is that every single person would be saved, okay, however, they give us a very unique training, okay, for certain people who you could say don't want to be saved, okay, um, it's Either that or they're, they're really scared. So basically, whenever you're going out and people are drowning, okay, when people are drowning, they're freaking out, right? Okay, so a lot of times what will happen is they'll start drowning you too, okay? So you're swimming out there to them, and you're like, hey, I'm a lifeguard. I'm here to save you. And they, like, jump on you and hang on you and, like, pull you down, and they're, like, trying to crawl up your back. So, and I mean, I, I know it sounds funny, but it's true. And they'll just, like, they'll, like, push you underneath, and then you'll start drowning. And so they teach us this technique to get people off of you that are basically drowning you, okay? And you gotta like, you gotta like turn your head and like sh grab their elbows and shove them up and go deep. Uh, and if you go deep, they don't wanna go deep, so they like let go of you and all this stuff. But anyway, there's some similarities. It's not the exact same thing, but there are some similarities with that and with Jesus, okay? They teach us in lifeguard training all these unique and different ways to save people depending on what they are. So if there's a person and they're struggling on top of the water and you can see that they're drowning, they teach us a certain save, right? So if they are, if they're like uh, unconscious and they're at the bottom of a pool, you have to save a different way. And if they are, let's say they're like laying on top of the water and they're unconscious, that's a different save. You got to do a different save there. So there's all these different saves that they teach us. And the same way as that, Jesus, he 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 meets these different people, and he uses a different technique to bring them to the understanding of the gospel every time. Okay, and his his desire and God's desire is that every single person would be saved. Okay, just like the lifeguards want everybody to be saved, He wants everybody to be saved. Sometimes there are people who reject that still, right? 
Um, uh, but he still in uniquely talks to and not talks to everybody because he uses word and other people in today's culture, right? Because he's not on earth. But here we see him uniquely talking to people, uniquely investing in people uh, so that they would be saved. And I think it's really cool. I think it's a really um, important thing about Jesus, okay? Because he does desire that everybody would be saved. And I believe that God gives every person an opportunity to be saved, whether that's through a person in the message of a person or a dream or creation itself or whatever. I do believe that God gives everybody an opportunity to be saved. Because I, and I think I can back, back it up biblically because he desires that everyone would be saved. Um, and so I think he gives everybody that opportunity. In this lesson, we see that he cares about somebody that he really shouldn't care about. And he desires that this, this woman that he meets uh, get saved. And really, in culturally and in every other way, he really shouldn't care about this person. Okay? And so I think it's really important uh, to look at this. So first thing we're going to look at okay, is the meeting. This is in verses 1 through 9. Uh, so what's going on in the timeline and then what, uh, when he actually meets this woman. We're going to read through it really quickly. I know it's a lot of verses, but verses 1 through 9, look at them again. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making disciples and baptizing uh, more than John, although Jesus himself was not baptized, his disciples were, he left Judea and went away to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the partial ground of Jacob and his well and all that stuff. So uh, basically uh, what's going on here, and this, you guys know the Synoptic Gospels, we talked about it a little bit, but Synoptic Gospels are the other three Gospels. They kind of all have the same flow. John doesn't. But what's going on in the Synoptic Gospels at the same time as this in John, okay, in Luke, okay, Luke 3, 19 through uh, 20, John the Baptist is arrested, okay? And when Jesus hears that John the Baptist is arrested, in 4.14, he returns to Galilee. Matthew 4.12, in Mark 1.4, Jesus returns to Galilee. Okay, so basically, um, I think I have a map of it. Yeah, right right here. All right, so I don't know if you guys can see this, but we, we put this up last week. Man, I tried to find a laser that's like good enough, but it's like not good enough. Okay, so he's been down here in Jerusalem. You guys see that down at the very bottom, right? Then he moves out after he cleanses the temple. He talks to Nicodemus. He does miracles. He moves out to Judea, right? That little area right there. Okay, so he moves out to Judea, and John the Baptist is up here. Okay, John the Baptist gets arrested by Herod, okay, and he moves from Judea, and he's going to come way back up here, okay, up into this area again, up into Galilee. So he takes this route through uh, Samaria, and he stops at this town called Sakar. So basically, um, we don't know how long he's in Judea, but he's there for a little bit, right? Because John the Baptist gets arrested, and all this stuff is kind of happening um, as he's there. So he's there for a while, but now he's heading back up north. And it says he has to go through um, Samaria, which is interesting, okay? Why did Jesus uh, have to go through Samaria? Um, you know, some people say that he was running away from the Pharisees as they arrested John the Baptist. They say that, you know, you know, he had to leave because people were pushing him out, kind of. Um, however, I know, and I, you know, we know that Jesus doesn't really make decisions based on human pressure. He says that he does the will of his Father. Um, and so some people would say, well, he's not using divine power. He's not using, you know, he's not using foreknowledge to go to uh, Samaria and to stop at Sakaar and to stop at the well and to meet this woman. But I think that's all ridiculous. I think that he knows that he's going to meet the woman in Samaria. I, know he, I think he knows the exact right time he's going to get there. And I think he's moving. And I think it says he has to go. If you look at 
um, verse 4, it says, And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. I think the had there is because the Father wanted him to go to, through Samaria. I think it says he had to go through Samaria because he wanted to obey his Father's will, and his Father's will was him to go through Samaria so he could meet this woman. And eventually, we'll see next week, a bunch of people from the town of Sakaar actually end up believing in him. So I think this is something that is divine and that God wanted him to do. He understands that, uh, and he goes. Yeah, I think it's because uh, there are people that say, you know, he, you know, he didn't know. He's just moving because the Pharisees are putting pressure on him to move or whatever. I don't know. It doesn't really matter too much, you know, when we think about it. Uh, or we don't think it does. Like, we're like, oh, it doesn't really matter why he went. But I think it does because I think this goes back to him understanding that this person, this woman, and the people of Sakaar, which we'll see next week, he understands that they need the gospel. He understands that they're ready to be saved. And so he goes and he shares the gospel with these people um, so that they be saved because he desires that everyone is saved. So I think we see here a desire for even Samaritans to um, be saved from here. Okay, So he just knows he's going to meet her here. Uh, here. Um, like I said, he had to. That's, this is, I'm going to do a little bit of Greek okay, today um, just because there's a lot of really cool stuff in the Greek. This is one of the not as cool things, but... This, is, this word right here means it is necessary, okay? So it says, but it is necessary that he would go through Samaria. So this word, I think this is coming like it is necessary from the Father, okay? Like I said, I don't think that it is necessary for him to go through because he thought the Pharisees would catch up with him or like he thought that Herod would arrest him or he, I just don't think that. And like you guys can take a different view on that. But I think this is, I think John's trying to show that Jesus is doing the will of the Father all the time. And it is necessary for him to go through Samaria. Why? Because these people need to be saved. And I think that's the necessary part. And again, it goes back to Jesus wants and desires everybody to be saved. Okay, so he gets there. He stops at this well, right, uh, on this parcel of ground, Jacob's well. He stops there, and the rest of his disciples go into town, um, the town of Sakaar, to get supplies and stuff like that. Um, and uh, when he stops there, okay, again, like, Jesus had a human body, and he's human. Uh, so, like, he could get tired and things like that. But, like, do you think he could have... Like, they, we think that the town is within visual distance of this well, okay? So you think Jesus could have, like, kept walking with his disciples into town if he wanted to? I mean, probably. I think he stops on purpose. Again, he's tired, and so he stops, and I think he knows that this, this woman's going to come out here. Now, it's about the sixth hour, according to Jewish calendar. Okay, that's in verse 6. It says it's about the sixth hour. Okay, Jewish calendar, that's about noon, okay, is when this is. Okay, so the woman is coming out about noon, uh, which we'll see in just a second. Uh, but the interesting thing about uh, it being noon is that, does anybody know when people usually gather water and why? In the morning because it's, cool. it's cool. Okay, we all know that from Oklahoma right now, especially in this time. Okay, nobody wants to do anything when it's 105 degrees out. Okay, and so uh, in, in the same way that we would say, hey, we need to get our work done in the morning because it's hot, and you know they didn't have AC and stuff, so they're not going to go carry all these big water jugs back in in the heat of the day. It's just not, it's just not smart. Okay, and so usually they went in the morning, and usually they all went together for several different reasons, right? Because it's hot in the afternoon. They go together because of um, probably just socially, it's better to go together. Um, you could be more protection and stuff like that as well. So she's coming out at noon. Okay, so what does that tell us about this woman, especially with what we learn later on? 
Okay, this woman was an outcast, okay, from her own people. Okay, and this is important because she was the outcast of the outcast. Now we'll learn more about this as we go through the passage, but the Samaritans were the outcasts. Okay? She is a Samaritan. Within the Samaritan group, she is the outcast. So she's literally the outcast of the outcasts. Like she's the bottom of the totem pole. The very, very worst of the worst, if you will. Okay? The people who are outcasts from everybody else don't even like her. Okay? So that's, a, that's a very important because Jesus, why would he be dealing with this person? There's no other reason other than he desires all to be saved. Okay? Also, when we notice, okay, we're going to start in verse 7 here. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, I am the Messiah, believe in me for eternal life. Is that what it says? Most of you said, I don't know. I wasn't reading and following along. So look at it. Okay, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water to give Jesus, uh, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Okay, I think it's interesting here. Um, and again, I think it speaks to the point that Jesus, he, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, all these people, he doesn't open up and say, Hey, I'm the Messiah, believe in me. He opens up and he starts to prepare them, he prepares their hearts by intentionally saying the things that he says to get them ready to believe. Okay? And he starts with her by saying, hey, give me a drink. Okay? He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have something to draw the water with. So he says, hey, can you give me a drink of water? Okay? And so verse 8 says his disciples, they'd gone away and, uh, into the city to get food, which again, I think it's in visual distance or at least very close. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John, the author, puts in this note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, Samaritans, they were what you might call like, uh, like if you were, <coughs> excuse me, like Jews might have called them like mixed breeds. Sometimes they called them dogs. They called them these people. They didn't like them. Okay, they didn't like them. The reason they didn't like them is because they were, they were half Jewish and half other things. Okay, so they weren't full-blood Jews. So they... The Jews didn't like them. They said they're not a part of us there. And especially since um, God had commanded in the Old Testament that Jews not intermarry with other countries. Okay, so uh, they said, you know, God said to not do this, and you guys have done it, and now we hate you. And it's become, at this point in Jesus' time, in Jesus' day, it's come, gotten to this point where the Jews hate the Samaritans, and most Samaritans hate Jews. Okay, and so not only is this woman, okay, a woman, which you don't really necessarily talk to a woman, especially a strange woman and a strange man. They don't really have a conversation just randomly. But she's also a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew. Okay, how did she know that he was a Jew? Um, I like to think about these things. Okay, like he gets up and there's just two people there. How does she, how does she know he's a Jew? Okay, what, do you, what are you guys' thoughts? I mean, this is just I mean, for fun. Style of clothing. It could have been a style of clothing, right? Could have had different style of clothing. What are some other ways she could have told, like, no. It's a good one. Physical features. Yeah, physical features. They could have looked different, right? Like, uh, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, they weren't blonde hair, blue eyes. But, like, that could tell that you're more of a certain accent. race or whatever. Yeah. Accent. I think accent's a big one, right? I think they definitely had different accents in Samaria uh, versus the Jew or Samaritans versus Jews. So accent could have been a big one. He could have come up and said, give me a drink. And she's like, oh, you're a Jew. You know, you're from the UK. I can tell. Uh, you're not from around here. Okay, and so she knows he's a Jew, maybe by some of these things, right? 
Okay, and so she sees her to do. She's like, hey, you're not supposed to be talking to me. I don't know why you're talking to me. Why are you asking me for a drink? Okay, all this is important, again, because it goes back to the fact that Jesus and God desire everyone to be saved. And that should be our desire as well. Okay, so then we see this misunderstanding, okay, in verses 10 through 19. And there's a lot in here. We're going to look at a lot. We're going to try and go quickly through it. But look at verse 10 with me. Uh, we'll start there, uh, and then uh, we'll go through it kind of as we go. So it says, Jesus uh, answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, now this is interesting for several reasons. Uh, one, because he's starting to get her on a spiritual level, right? He's, he's turning the conversation to try and get her thinking about spiritual things. Now, it takes a while, just like it did Nicodemus. But he starts to say, hey, he brings God into the situation, okay, into the conversation by saying, if you knew the gift of God. And he said uh, he got living water to bring the life into it as well. Uh, and, you know, she's, she's going to be confused for a while. Okay, but Jesus knows that, and he's still saying these things to get her to think about, to bring her mind back to um, what it should be. Now, this statement, if, okay, I said we're going to do some Greek. Okay, this is, and we're going to use this more throughout John, okay, because if is a big thing. When you see if, you need to ask some questions about it. Okay, in Greek, there are three, well, there's really four, but three in the New Testament Greeks that are used. Two of them are spelled E-I, and one of them spelled a different way. The one that's spelled a different way it means like if how we usually think of if, which is like if, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Like if it rains, I'm not going to be able to mow the lawn. Well, it might rain or it might not rain. Okay, then the other two ifs are like if and it's not true and if and it's true. So it's like um, if it would have rained, if it would have rained, then uh, I wouldn't have mowed a lawn. If it would have rained, but it didn't. That's how we would use it. We, we use context, right, to un- figure that out. So it's past tense. If it would have rained, I wouldn't have mowed. Well, if it would have rained, but it didn't rain. So that's if and it's not true. Okay, and then if and it's true, um, you could be if, I didn't come up with these beforehand. I'm trying to come up with them on the spot in English. But if it's uh, like, if and it's true, would be like, oh, okay, so and we'll, we don't see this in John, but we see this in Mark and Matthew and in Luke. When Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he says, if you are the Christ or if you are if you're God, if you're the Messiah, if you are Christ, that's an if and it's true. It's like, if you are and you are. Okay? That's more of like a present or a future tense. So this, oh, dang it, sorry. All right, there we go. This little if right here, okay, the reason I put all this up here, okay, it's a verb, it's second person, it's plural to know, okay? Uh, or sorry, it's not plural, it's, uh, that's pluperfect. So pluperfect means it's past tense, okay? I know this is all like, you know, grammar and stuff, but this comes into play later on. So when it's past tense, it's usually if and it's not true. Okay, so when he says, if you had known, okay, that's past tense, that's pluperfect, past tense. If you had known the gift of God, but you don't. You don't know what the gift of God is. So he's saying, you don't know what the gift of God is, but if you had, you would have said to me, and you would have known uh, who it is that said you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, so, um, you know, she's thinking physical again, okay, because look at verse 11. Just like Nicodemus, she's, she's in this physical mindset, okay, she's not thinking spiritually. Uh, so she says to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? So at this point, she probably thinks he's a little crazy, right? 
she's like, okay, this is like a crazy guy. I need to be careful here because uh, he's like talking about living water and all this weird stuff. So she's like, all right, Mr. Living Water Guy, where are you going to get the water from? You can't, even, you can't even get this water. And she's like, and I know this ain't living because I've been drinking it and I have to keep on drinking it. So she said, where are you going to get this living water? Okay, and then she says, she kind of uh, makes a stab at him. And she says in uh, verse 12, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? So she says, are you, are you greater than uh, Jacob there, Mr. Living Water Guy? That you're going to give me some special water? Jacob gave me this water. you giving me more than that? How are you better than Jacob? Okay, turns out he is, right? And he's going to show her that he is, okay, which is kind of cool. But she's kind of, uh, I think, in the sarcastic mood of, come on, dude, what are, what are you doing? And it's just like any of us. And it, and it shows, too, that if Jesus would have come up to her and said, I am the Messiah, believe in me, she would have been like, yeah, right. Uh, you're not the Messiah. Okay, but he's using wisdom and tactful conversation and speech to get her to where she needs to be because he really desires that she be saved. Okay? Um, so Jesus answers her in verse 13. Okay? And this is one of... Verse 13 and 14 are huge. Okay? The, from a theology standpoint, we're going to talk about it and we're going to look at it, but you should really remember verse 13 and 14 and some stuff in here. And we're going to look at it. Okay, so Jesus answers her and says, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. What water? The water from the well, Jacob's well, right? So she, she says, is Jacob better than you? Or, I mean, are you better than Jacob? No. And he says, if you drink from Jacob's well, are you going to thirst again? Yes. Okay, so then he goes on and he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Okay, so this is huge, okay? Um, the picture here, okay? He gives us a little illustration, okay? And it's really easy to understand this illustration. That's why I like it. Uh, you know, he gave Nicodemus, like, the spirit and the wind. And I'm like, man, Nicodemus must have been really smart because, like, that one's kind of hard. This one, he gives, and it's really easy, okay? The picture here, okay? The water is the message, okay? The water is the message. It's the gospel message, okay? The drinking is believing, okay? When you drink, that's like you're believing, Okay, and the well is life. The well is life. And the thirst is the need for salvation. Okay? So just remember that as we go through it. The water's the message, the drinking is the believing, the well is the life, and the thirst is the need. Okay, it's the need for salvation. So we're going to go through this in Greek, okay? <clears throat> because the Greek in this is huge, okay? So this is verse right here. This is um, verse 14, when it says him, I will give to him, and he will never thirst again, okay? Uh, when you drink of the water that I give to him, he will never thirst again. Hey, come on in, come on in. So, this is, uh, this is the Greek there, okay? So, how many of you guys remember what double negative in Greek means? Well, what does double, double negative in English mean? It means yes, right? If you say no... I don't know how to come up with a sentence of double negative. But if you say no, no in English, then it is yes. All right? What does no, no in Greek mean? Does anybody remember? Remember the very first day, I think? It means an emphatic no. It's just like um, Latin, I think Spanish. I'm not sure. Yeah, is Spanish, it Spanish? You don't say I don't have any. You say I don't have 
Nothing. I don't have, yes. Okay, so same thing in Greek. It's no, no. So when in Greek, it's these two. I know you can barely see it, but it's ou and me. Okay, ou and me means definitely not. Okay, so it's double negative means definitely not. So first off, he says, ou me. No, no, definitely not. Okay, then this is the word for thirsty. Now, this word for thirsty is verb. Okay, it's third person singular future. Okay, to be thirsty. And then, something our translations don't translate very well, it says, for eternity. Now, your translation and mine probably say, you will never thirst, I will give them a drink, and he will never thirst again. Okay, in the Greek, it's a lot stronger than that, because it says, and this is how I would render it, he will definitely not be thirsty for eternity. Okay, he will definitely not be thirsty for eternity. So they say never to try and get that emphatic eternity idea. Okay, there is an LEB, LEB translation, that, um, I'm sorry that you just came in and walked in and we're doing Greek, uh, but don't worry, it'll get better in a second, okay? Uh, but uh, there's this LEB translation that does translate it this way, and I think it's good because basically what Jesus is saying here is when I give you the water that I have, which remember the water, um, if I give you the water, that's the message, and you drink of it, which is believing, you're going to have this well, okay? You're never going to be a thirsty, definitely never going to be thirsty ever again. Okay, so there are some people, there are many people that say, if you believe in Jesus for eternal life, or whatever, you, you get saved, then you can lose it, right? Have you guys ever heard that? Like, you can lose it. You can do bad things, or you can give it back. I hear a lot of people say you can give it back. In the Greek, you can't. In the Greek, in verse 14, you can't. There's, you can't. It says, you will definitely never be thirsty again. Remember, thirsty is what? Being thirsty is the need for salvation. I need salvation. I'm thirsty because I need salvation. So it says you're never going to need salvation again if you believe, okay? And to me, that's strong. And um, you get, some of you guys may know Zane Hodges. I know what people over there do. But Zane Hodges took this verse 14, and like he loved it because of this. And he used it to argue um, against people who said you could lose your salvation. Okay, you can never lose your salvation. Read it again. Uh, this is John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. It says, Everyone who drinks of this water um, will thirst again, meaning Jacob's water. But whoever drinks, which is believes, of the water, that's the message, that I give him will never thirst. That's never need salvation again. But the water that I give him, the message that I give him, will become in him a well that's of water springing up into eternal life. That's eternal life. So he's saying, if you believe in me for eternal life, believe in the message, which is me, for eternal life, you will never have to drink again. Why? Because you're never going to need salvation again. Okay, this is, again, the strongest and one of the best passages, I think, if you know just a little bit of Greek. And you don't even have to know Greek. You just have to know the Greek enough to know what it says, right? And if you know that, you can use this verse so well to show that Jesus is saying that you can never lose your salvation. Okay, if you believe in Him for eternal life, you have it, and you can never lose it. Okay, that's why I love this one so much. That's why I'm passionate about it because I think it's really good. Okay, and it also shows, again, what we've been talking about again and again, His desire that everyone be saved. Okay, God wants every single person on earth to be saved, and I think, you know, we're looking at Him talking to the woman at the well and all these people, and He's and He's sharing the gospel with them so that they can be saved. So we know that He desires them to be saved. But the fact that you can never lose your salvation shows how much God really wants everyone to be saved. He makes it so easy to be saved. 
Why? Because he wants everyone to be saved. And you can't lose it. Why? Because he desires that everybody be with him. He wants everybody to be saved. And I think it's a huge deal. I think it's a huge deal. Okay? And so, um, if we go on, okay, the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and I won't come all the way over here to have to draw. Okay? And so, she's still thinking physical here. She's like, okay, if you have some sort of water that can make me never be thirsty again, like, give it to me so I don't have to keep coming and drawing water from this well. Like, I won't have to make this walk all the way out here to keep drawing well and bringing it to back to my house. Right? And uh, so she's still thinking physical here. And he says to her, okay, because he's going to get her out of this physical mindset. He says to her, go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answers, says, I have no husband. Okay? She just knew she had no husband, right? And he knows everything about her because this is what he says. He replies to her and he says, you have correctly said that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. So thus you have truly said. Why do you say that? Why do you call her out like that? Okay, We figure it out in verse, nine, in verse 19. He knows what her response is going to be. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Okay, What does that mean? That means that she now understands that he is something more than just some crazy guy that's talking about living water. She says, Okay, I'm perceiving that you're a prophet. And so she has a question for him. Um, in verse uh, 20, okay? And so this is what I call the merge, okay? Verses 19 through 20. Okay, so she perceives him as a prophet, and then she's going to ask him a hard question because she wants to see if he understands things, okay? And then he's going to give a, a, a cool answer that is really practical for us, I think. Okay, so she says, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers, okay, the hour there is the Samaritans, right? All the Samaritan people, Okay, they worshipped on this mountain. And you people say that Jerusalem, the you people is the Jews. Okay, you people say that Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Okay, so she says, hey, you know, we worship here. You worship over there in Jerusalem. Okay, so what about that? Like, what, what about that? Why are you offering me living water? Like, we don't even agree on stuff. Like, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Our religion, like we worship the same God, but we worship here, you worship there. You say that we can't worship unless we go down there. Okay? And part of that is true. Right? And we're going to look out. We're going to look at it. Because Jesus answers her. He says in verse 21, He says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She so says, pretty soon you're not going to worship Him in either place. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. So the Samaritans are worshiping what they don't know, uh, the Jews are worshiping what they know, for salvation is from the Jews. What does he mean by that? Okay. Where did salvation come from, first off? Where did the Messiah, who, what people group did the Messiah come through, Jesus come through? The Jews. The Jews. Okay. Which people group did the Word of God come through? The Jews. The Jews. Okay. Where did God reside in the Old Testament? The Jews. With, all with the Jews. Okay. And so Jesus is saying, you're worshiping somebody that you don't know. Not saying that they couldn't know God but saying that they're worshiping on this mountain when really God is in Jerusalem. Okay. Now here's the question okay, for, for you guys. Why, why could this... I'm going to ask this again in a second because it will make more sense. But why could this not have happened before the death and resurrection of Christ? So why, before in the Old Testament, why was God only with the Jews? Why was He only in the temple? Why was He not with everybody? Why did He not indwell every believer, okay? We're going to think about that as we keep on going, okay? Because Jesus is saying here, we know, okay, we have God. We have 
Uh, the Jews have God. We have the temple. Okay, we are worshiping who we know because God is with us. He's not with the Samaritans. Okay, which is true. Okay, but look at verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers worship Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. For God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's saying there's a time and it's now here, which means like it's, it's here. Okay, it's coming. It's, it's, I'm here. Okay, is what he's saying. Okay, when you're not going to have to worship in Jerusalem. Okay, why did you, when they say you have to worship in Jerusalem, what do they mean? Why did you have to worship in Jerusalem? That's where the temple is, and that's where God was, right? Where was God? He was in the Holy of Holies, right? That's where he resided, right? In, like with man. In regards to man, that's where he resided, was in the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died and rose again, uh, well, when he died, okay, on the cross, uh, everything went dark, the earthquake. What happened in the Holy of Holies? The veil tore. The veil tore. What did that signify? Right, the way to God was open. Why? Because the price had been paid. That's exactly right. So in the Old Testament, people could not be with God, right? The people of Israel were the, the chosen people that God resided with where people could worship God and get near to God. So if you wanted to be near to God, you had to be near the people of Israel. Because God couldn't be with everybody because the price hadn't been paid yet, right? Because we're all sinners, right? God created us. Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin separates us from God, right? Yes? Yes, so that sin separates us from God, so now we're separated. Okay, at that point, we can't come back and be with God because he can't, uh, he, he can't be with sin, right? So then, that's why Jesus had to come. When he, and in the Old Testament, before Jesus had come, the payment hadn't been made yet, so that's why they had to offer sacrifices and coverings and all this stuff. Okay, now, Jesus is saying, hey, an hour's coming, I'm going to, he doesn't say I'm going to die and rise again, but he's saying I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, the way's going to be open, and everybody can worship God in spirit and truth. Why? Because the price has been paid. I'm going to take your payment so you can be with God on an individual level, which is really cool. Okay, it's really cool. And uh, it's, it's really important, too, because this also shows that God is desiring that all men come to know him. Not just Israel, not just the Jews. He desires every person. Okay, the Jews were the mouthpiece of God. They were where God resided. That's who the Messiah came through. But when the Messiah did come, um, things changed. Okay, things change um, a little bit. Okay, so because you weren't near God in the Old Testament, um, you know they didn't they didn't know God in the same way the Jews did. But now everybody can. So this is the 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 merge. I call it the merge because like people, all people are kind of merging together in in the idea of them being able to be with God or be able to worship God. Right. So all of us now, um, when you believe, you get the Holy Spirit, and you guys can uh, access God. Because of Jesus Christ, He's our mediator in First Timothy, right? So we can go to God because of Jesus. Okay. So this is her question. I don't know how much of that she understood. Okay. Because in the end, in verse twenty-five, she's like, "Okay, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ, and when that one comes, He'll declare all things to us." Okay. And this is, um, let's see if I can get it. Yeah. Let's go. This is the Messiah. Verse twenty-five and twenty-six. We're gonna be done in verse twenty-six today. Okay. But she says, after all that, she's like. Well, you know what? Like the Messiah's going to come and he'll he'll explain this stuff to us. You know, I don't really know what you're saying, but he'll explain it when he comes. Okay. Now, Jesus answers him, and you guys remember "ego e me." We've been talking about it for a long time. This is an "ego e me" statement. Okay. 
So in verse uh, 26, it's a very powerful and strong statement. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. Okay, that's the way my Bible translates it. Okay, she says, well, the Messiah is going to come. And He says, I am the Messiah. Okay, now there's a bunch of people out there that would say Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be Messiah and things like that. Well, He does right here. Okay, and this is, again, the Greek. Okay, sorry, again, new person. You know, again, all this Greek. Okay, so for those of you uh, who've been here, do you guys see in this the ego me statement? You see ego me. I'm just trying to get you guys to visually see it, okay, because it is, uh, it's, it's very important. We're going to see it a lot, okay? It's this right here. E, that's a G-O-E-I-M-I. Ego me, okay? Ego me. So it's right here, okay? I have it all, oh no, I don't have it all translated. E I yeah E I M I right there, okay. So E G O E I M I. This is used by Jesus a lot, and it's really important. Okay, who remembers why it's important? Jillian, do you remember why it's important uh, on the spot? You don't have to remember why it's important. I need so I am in it. It's oh wait, I'm, yeah. Uh, well, the I is being. It is. You're exactly right. So this, so in Greek, okay, this is a verb. And within the verb, it'll be like a first person. You guys know what first person is? So, e me, this word right here, it's am. It's the word am. Okay, but because it's first person, it's I am. So this word by itself means I am. So why in the world, this is, okay, this is Jesus says to him, I am am or I am I so why would you say I I am why would you say I I am that's what that's the question is because he's emphasizing that I okay that's why he puts he basically puts two eyes in there and he says I am okay he says I am the one who is speaking to you this is a that's a participle we talked about that a couple weeks ago I'm just going to reference that. I'm not going to talk about it. But it's a participle, so it can be an ing, which is important in some of the other things. But he says, I'm the one who is speaking to you. Okay, that's how it's translated. Or I who speak to you am he. Okay, he's putting an emphasis on I because he's saying I am the Messiah. And she knows that. Okay, does she know um, the emphasis, the language, and all that stuff? I, know, I don't know if they're speaking Greek or Hebrew or what, but he emphasizes it somehow, right? And so she knows that he's saying I and he. Okay, we're going to see her response um, next week. Okay, and we're going to see the response of the people. We're going to see her response. And it's all really uh, kind of cool. But he declares himself as Messiah right here. Okay, and he strongly declares himself as Messiah. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he said that Jesus had to either be a lunatic, a liar, or who he, who he was, who he said he was. Okay, he had to be a lunatic, a liar, speaking the truth. I can't remember the exact phrase. Yeah, Lord. He had to be lunatic, liar, or Lord. Okay, he is Lord. Why did he have to be lunatic, liar, or Lord? Because he claims to be God. And he claims to be Messiah. And there's a bunch of people out there that say he doesn't. Like Jehovah Witness or um, Mormons. Or, you know, people like that will say, oh, he never claims to be God in the, in the Bible. And that's just not true. Okay, it's a very strong statement here. Claiming to not only be the Messiah, but I think God as well. Because God is Messiah. Right? And so he claims that here to her. And we're going to see the rest of it. Uh, next week, but for us, what are the applications? Okay, this whole time we've been going through this, we've been seeing how 
tactfully Jesus talks to this woman at the well. Okay, she's an outcast of outcasts. Jesus should not care about her. Okay, but he does. And he cares about her so much that he doesn't just come up to her and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. He comes up to her and says, hey, give me a drink. And he starts leading her down this path where she'll understand who the Messiah is to the point where he can say in verse 26, I am the Messiah. And we'll see next week she accepts that. Hey, and she believes. Okay, but if we looked, I think if we looked at people and interacted with people the way that Jesus does, we would look at people and interact with people a lot differently uh, than we normally do. Okay, because my normal um, fleshly way to look at people is not um, like when I just see somebody on the street, it's not like, oh, I desire that person to be saved. I desire that person to be with God because that's the best possible thing for them. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't just see some guy on the street and be like, oh man, I hope that he knows Jesus. You know what I mean? Like maybe every once in a while I do, but like as a whole, like that's just not how I view people. But as we see Jesus interacting with his people, John did this on purpose to show us his mindset. His mindset wasn't, so he came to offer himself to the Jews, right? As Messiah and King, and they rejected it, right? For those of you who've been in here a lot. Okay, so that's his goal and his, his purpose in a way, right? His purpose is also to save everyone, and that's his ultimate purpose. Okay, and we see his ultimate purpose of wanting to save everyone by these interactions with these meaningless people. Like on the grand scheme of things, who is this woman? I mean, she's, she's nobody. She's some sinful, adulterous outcast in a people group who's an outcast people group. She's literally no one. And she cares about her. Okay? And he doesn't just care for those outcast people either. He cares for Nicodemus, who is high in the ranks of the religious leaders, who is high up in the ranks of the Jewish system. He cares about those people too. He cares about the top to the bottom. And I think that John puts it in this order and in this way, and even Jesus, I think he he went through the way he did to show us that I care about the person on the top and I care about the person on the bottom. And I care about every single person in between because I desire everyone to be saved. Okay, And we, I think, could, me for sure, can look at people in a better way of saying, hey, this person needs to be with God. I, want, I desire them to be with God. I desire them to have salvation to be saved. Um, and then for believers, I desire them to draw close to God. And we'll, we'll continue to see it. As, as we go throughout John, we're going to continue and continue to see Jesus caring about people and caring about their eternal destiny, caring about them being in fellowship with Him, caring about how they act, who they are um, as human beings and as people. Okay, And so we can see this. I think we can take application and um, look at people hopefully in a better way. Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.